Welcome to the Rogue Journal Club, where we tear studies apart so you don't have to. The Rogue Journal Club is a Shio Sophia production, featuring long-form discussions of peer-reviewed studies, published in academic journals, and their connections to society. I'm Adrian, And I'm Gina. We'll be your hosts. A journal club is when academics at universities get together to talk about papers. But we've gone rogue. We're going to do Journal Club our way. Join us. On this episode of the Rogue Journal Club, we'll be talking about the article Epistemic Trust and the Ethics of Science Communication Against Transparency, Openness, Sincerity, and Honesty, written by Stephen John for a 2018 issue of the journal Social Epistemology. Here we got our uh, lovely article, Epistemic Trust and the Ethics of Science Communication Against Transparency, Openness, Sincerity, and Honesty. Which is it's a very clickbaity title. Yeah. I remember thinking like, I'm gonna hate this paper. And I mostly didn't like it, but there it wasn't actually as bad as I thought it would be. There were some interesting points. So Yeah, I, I thought that too. Um I also I mean, for me because I do so much stuff and research and climate change anyway this was <laughs> yeah this was very much i'll i'll end up having to ask you some questions about the ipcc because he talks about that a lot so yeah and i think um i'm not so sure the the gentleman uh uh who wrote this actually knows what the ipcc is because Okay, I was wondering how accurate his take on that was, because I was like, I don't really know, but I know you participated in it to some extent, so you're definitely more well, more knowledgeable yeah, than I am. I was never an author in IPCC or anything like that, but I, when the, like like all the different kinds of governmental or intergovernmental agencies, they do, they do the um, they do the open public review of different things and things like that, or technical review and what have you, in which they invite scientists and staff and things like that to just go ahead and review stuff and um yeah and and that's uh that's where i've contributed to ipcc in the past is is has been uh, in the review phase when they've needed reviews of drafts i go in and review sections because i don't review all i can't review all of it i kind of focus on things that are my <laughs> my direct wheelhouse because it's just yeah the ipcc reports are gigantic yeah this for, for, this for those coming into this for the first time ipcc is intergovernmental panel on climate change <laughs> it's the big organization that aggregates all of the data about climate change and tells us all the stuff we want to know and more and what we don't want to know and everything else about it yeah the, so this ipcc this he the author claimed ipcc is a corporate thing but it's yeah that was odd i like Maybe it's an analogy. Maybe he didn't really think that. I don't know. It is. This is a social science journal. It's the journal of uh, what is it called? Social epistemology. So this is like kind of a philosophy slash social science journal. And you can tell by the writing style that it's a philosophy 
person because it's like very obtuse abstract writing and as a an, an editor I was like cringing so much throughout reading this there were like typos too um but that's not his fault that's probably the journal's fault but well I, I appreciated the prosaic um boy who cried wolf analogy that was actually a crappy analogy and I will talk more about why I thought that was a bad analogy, but let's actually tell the people what on earth we're even talking about. Do you want to like read the abstract maybe? Yeah, yeah let's do that. Um, so this is the abstract. So yeah, as we said, epistemic trust and the ethics of science communication against transparency, openness, sincerity, and honesty, uh, written by Professor Stephen John, appearing in the 2018 uh, Social Epistemology. Um, is abstract is uh, it is commonly claimed that scientists should hold certain communicative virtues such as sincerity, openness, honesty, and transparency. This paper uses the case of climate science to argue against these claims, rather based on a novel ac account of the range of ways in which non-experts learn from experts detailed in section one, there are reasons to deny that scientists are under any basic obligation to be sincere honest, open, or transparent. Furthermore, not only are these claims analytically confused, they are epistemologically, that's a heck of a word, and politically dangerous. Sections two through four argue these claims. The conclusion proposes an alternative standard for ethical communication that scientists should not engage in, quote, wishful speaking. Yeah, so for those of you who are new to the journal article thing, an abstract is basically the little summary paragraph at the top that explains what it's about. And if you've ever tried to get a journal article, uh, that's usually all they let you see before you hit the paywall. So we uh, we have the whole text here of this. And when I when I so I got this paper a while ago, and and I was interested in it because uh, in my day job. I am interested in trust in science communication. So I downloaded maybe close to 80 articles about trust in science communication, and this was one of them. And most studies actually are very much in favor of trust and openness in science communication. And this was one that presented an opposite viewpoint. And so I like to get those and find out why. And my fears of what his what of what his view would be were somewhat confirmed and i was kind of hoping that that wouldn't be the case um but we'll get into that i mean there were some points he made that were valid but i think i don't know overall it's just kind of bummed me out by the end when i read the beginning on sincerity i thought he made some interesting points about sincerity but then i didn't really agree with his definition of sincerity so I was gonna say, yeah that was one thing that struck me because it was just like he he actually makes it point early on. It's like, well, if you're nitpicking about my definitions, um, kind of thing, yeah, you might suspect that this paper will use uncommon definitions of terms such as honesty. I hope not. However, my aim is not to show that on every specification of the term, honesty is not required. Rather, it is to show that certain platitudes, be honest, inhibit our understanding of the ethical and epistemic complexities of scientific communication. Yeah, he was basically calling out like if you if you don't like my definitions then you're then you're uh, I don't know arguing from emotion or something. I don't know what that was supposed to be about. Um, yeah, he was basically saying would you be as he went on to say if you were if you were be would you be as zealous if this was a familiar recommendation. So, you know what? I think I think I understand what he's trying to say and it's a little bit it I got to say that like 
way of writing sounds like internet arguing to me. Like, I don't know. I thought that was actually kind of funny, but, um, yeah, so that's fair. Sometimes I think we do criticize things that we already don't agree with and we're more forgiving of the, the, the rational qualities of things we do already agree with. That's fair. Like, I think you, you could totally say that. So I guess though, definitions do sometimes matter. So if we are starting from different premises, then you kind of can't continue the conversation. So his, so I don't know, I'm going to go through what I think his main points are, but you can tell me if you got that or not. So he thinks that specifically sincerity is, uh, he had a really bizarre definition for it and it's something like making, oh, here it is. I take sincerity to mean the virtue of fitting one's public claims to one's private attitudes. To be sincere, an agent's public assertions must accu accurately reflect what she herself believes. So if that's what he means by sincerity, then I can certainly see why you would not want to be sincere uh, in your science communication because your personal beliefs should on some level be separate from what you're explaining, depending on what you're explaining. So if you're talking about like what generally the data shows, you don't have to convey whether you agree with it or not. You can just say, this is what it shows. Mm -hmm. And then people can do what they want with it. But he doesn't seem to really be comfortable with people doing what they want with information. I think that's really the, the problem here because his, I forget where he says it. Uh, I, I may not be able to find a direct quote because I, I highlighted this thing to death and still somehow can't find my spots because that's my brain. I do that too. But yeah, yeah, I don't know. My brain doesn't work. I don't know why, but it works when I need it to sometimes. So anyway, he says that if the goal is to get people to believe true things or to have true beliefs or something, and I know in my science communication world i'm not really concerned with people having true beliefs i'm more concerned with people having good thinking processes so in my know the my efforts to communicate science are really to show how science works so that people know what science is and isn't so that when they want to think through something and arrive at a conclusion that they do it using like good sound rational methods um, and there, I do agree with some of the points he makes about people having folk science, f uh, folk philosophy of science views where they're like sort of superficial ideas about what science is supposed to be like. Um, and the reality is messier. I was actually annoyed with that false, folksy, false scientific, belief, philosophical beliefs about science or whatever the heck he calls it. Yeah. Because he never defines it. <laughs> yeah, he... I think he, that's true. And he also sort of, I think I know what he's talking about. And I think it's like, <laughs> uh, it's really trying to explain like what sort of people online who don't have formal science training sometimes perceive science to be. So they're aware of things that you, maybe you get taught this if you've gone to college and you've got a bachelor's degree, or maybe they even teach this in high school today. Um, and it's, there's plenty of it online to teach yourself if you never heard it in school, which is like, don't confuse correlation with causation. 
um, and that science should be open. And I know that I definitely had somebody. Now you, I don't, I don't know what your objection is, but I'm going to say this story and then you can tell me what you think. Somebody in my, my writing course emailed me and was upset at my characterization of pseudoscience. And so I did change it in the course because I think I wasn't clear, but I don't, I didn't necessarily change what I think about pseudoscience. I think my explanation was just poor. So when something is pseudoscience, it's, it's because it, sounds like science, but it did not use scientific processes to arrive at the claim that it's making. But she thought that uh, science needs to be open-minded so that if I don't agree with her, then I'm being anti-scientific. Or if I'm not considering her viewpoint, then I'm being anti-scientific. And I, I don't have to consider someone's viewpoint if they have not arrived at it through scientific means. That makes it not science. It doesn't mean that you can't think it, but it just means that as a scientist, I don't need to consider it. So I think that's kind of what he's getting at is like people having these sort of like false oversimplified perceptions of what science is really like, but the truth is messier that it, but, and he talks about that East Anglia thing, which climate gate as an example. So I'd love to know what you think of this. (laughs) I... I can, well, okay, so where he's arguing from, although there was one thing up at the front that got me, um, because I think it's not necessarily a great assumption (laughs) that he makes, um, that, um, so, quote, before going any further, three clarifications may help. First, work on trust and expertise. Expertise often focuses on epistemological puzzles in particular, whether knowledge can be gained through expert testimony. This paper does not address these questions. All I assume is that the world is a better place if non-experts' beliefs are informed by true experts' claims, regardless of whether such beliefs constitute knowledge. <laughs> um, I- yeah, the, the writing style is very hard to wrap your head around. There's definitely a lot of sentences I had to read like multiple times because of just... Well, you know, I mean, when I read that one, that's the thing of you're making the assumption that the world would be a better place if the experts were in charge, essentially. Well, not in charge, but if everybody believed everything the experts were saying. And so that goes back to our immediate argumentation of just like, how do you define an expert, right? Or yeah, things like that. But also, I I get nervous about that. And I say this as a research scientist, because it's just like, why should someone believe something that comes out of my mouth just because I'm an expert? Yeah. And he points out that it's hard sometimes for people to know. And I, again, I wish that I could find my notes more easily than this, but he talks about how it is actually difficult for uh, a non-expert, which I try not to use non-expert because everybody's an expert in something. So a non-scientist like how a non-scientist would be able to assess the track record of an expert. It's not always very straightforward. And I know when I used to be on Locals and I talked a lot um, to people on there, that that was the main concern is like, well, I have to figure out how to determine if someone's trustworthy, not like if their knowledge is something that I can rely on or not. And I don't have the background to read all these journal articles and learn all about all these different scientists and what they've done. And, you know, and it is, 
it, it is a lot to ask for somebody. It, it's it's a quite a tall order to be like, I've studied the subject for 30 years and you should probably believe me. I don't know what to say to that sometimes because like, yeah, sometimes people who have expertise do misleading things with it. I can think of some popular examples, but a lot of scientists are really boring people and they don't really, they're not trying to deceive. They're not trying to do anything underhanded. They just like working. They just like working and they want to make sure their grants get funded so they can keep paying their bills. Exactly. Like, I mean, yeah, it's, there's so little actual corruption, but I do worry about attitudes like this guy, because honestly, he said in there, telling people how sausage is made does not necessarily increase sausage sales. And that was what I was afraid this argument was going to be, that the public can't handle the truth. So we have to tell them basically like <laughs> white lies to protect them. There's a movie quote in there somewhere. You can't. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I, I do agree that, I mean, I I've had a concern for a long time that maybe it's been a problem in this country uh, maybe not elsewhere, but in this country, you know, that you place scientists and experts up on a pedestal that they can't be questioned. That's a tremendous amount of power to give somebody, you know, that, that that's the long concern that I have. And actually, I'd say, say to a lot of folks, it's like, yeah, I'm a scientist. Yeah, I'm an expert in what I do. And climate science is my, my thing. I just like, no, no, no. I don't want you to immediately take my word for what I'm saying. I want you to understand what this stuff is so you can come back and talk to me about it and ask me some questions. And yeah, you may not know everything. That's fine. But I would rather you question and challenge me because trust is kind of two ways in the sense that, you know, yeah, you can trust me to tell you what I think this is and what it is based on the evidence and all this other kind of stuff. But I also got to trust that you understand it enough that you're actually going to make a good decision with it. If you're talking about decision-making and policy-making, which is primarily what he focuses on. He's focused yeah. on the issue of policy-making, which that was actually a critique I had of this article because he's making a generalization about all people based upon how climate science has interacted with policymakers over the years. And that's a really specific thing to try and make an interaction, uh, make a connection with because think of all the different ways we do science communication right i mean we're kind of doing that right now um yep you also have what teachers you have professors teaching students you have professors you have you have students practicing presentations out in the public or to each other um or to conferences all these different kinds of modes of science communication and media and what have you and he focused so much exclusively on the policy side of things um and this thing that he gets into the unified, I don't actually disagree with the with the idea and the premises that he has. Because that which part? Sense. Um, the premises in section one that that uh, that unified model thing that he put forward. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. The sociological right. premise is the first one. Institutional structures are such the best explanation for the factual content of some claim made by a scientist or group or subject to some consensus is that this claim meets scientific epistemic standards for proper acceptance. And the second premise being the epistemological one, if some claim meets scientific epistemic standards for proper acceptance, then I should accept the claim as well. What he's arguing is that second one doesn't always follow from the first. 
Yeah, I thought that was a good point because he talks about how like a lot of the people that are climate skeptics actually do appeal to science. Mm-hmm. They actually just think that the scientists' political views are are um, causing problems in their specific scientific analyses. Yeah. Oh well, and that yeah. has a name for it. It's something something we do all the time. It's called the actor network style of communication, where you you're one actor, but you can refer to other actors in the network to hmm. to um, to support yourself or to rebut somebody else or you to you know those kinds of things that gets invoked all the time, both in science and in and in other disciplines. You know, when you're when you're dealing with courtroom evidence or things like that, it would get get invoked there when you're talking about te- testimony of different people. Um, so that's what actually what he's talking about in that. So um, so back to the IPCC report real quick. Um, for the audience to understand, so the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, every few years there's an assessment report that's put out. We just got the sixth one, I think. Uh, the sixth one has just finished their third working group report. There's something to understand about that, which definitely he does not come across. And this is, again, why there's a problem here with just saying scientific communication, although it does point to the mediation issue. Most people who read anything of the IPCC reports read what's called the summary for policymakers, and it is the much shorter, um, the much shorter thing there, rather than the much longer, much much longer. Those are like thousand pages plus. Those things are huge. Um, actual working group reports. So there's three different working groups, and each one puts out a report every time there's an assessment report from the IPCC, and every yeah. one of them also has a summary for policymakers. What most people don't realize is that the working group reports, the full-length reports, are primarily only the work of the scientists who are synthesizing the many, 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 many studies that come out between each between each um, assessment report. The summary for policymakers is not that. It is informed by the scientists, yes, but because this is not a corporate thing, this is not corporate in terms of the uh, being like a corporate company or something like that. This is something out of the United Nations. Um, but because of that, and because it's intergovernmental, what happens with the summary for policymakers is that once they get a draft of the summary for policymakers, all the diplomatic delegations are sitting down and going through it and voting on everything line by freaking line. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so by the time it gets out to the public, it's been edited quite a fair bit. The, the main points that are there are science points, yes, but it's been edited quite a fair bit that it's actually a lot of influence from the diplomatic interactions that go on at the same time. Mm. Um, and that's what policymakers around the world see far more than the much longer and much more depth working group reports. And that's what most people read. Uh, yeah. They do read it at all because even the summary for policymakers is long because usually it's like 40 or 50 pages. <laughs> yeah. You're synthesizing a thousand pages down to 50. I mean, that, that's pretty good. Um. Yeah. No, seriously. I, I don't, I think, I don't think I've ever attempted, maybe I looked at, at the short summary for policymakers once, but I don't have the expertise. I am a biologist. I don't know how to understand any. I mean, I can look at graphs and sort of infer some things because I know how to read a plot. But I mean, yeah, if the journalists are the ones basically reading that and then communicating this to the public, it's 
yeah, there's missing a lot. I think, is his characterization of the IPCC accurate in this way? I, have a, I had a question because I wasn't really sure if this made sense. So how the IPCC is compiled. So he has like these two ways he, he talks about consensus. And I know a lot of people that I've talked to online who are science skeptics and stuff like that don't like the idea of consensus, but I could talk about that another time maybe. Um, but that there's natural consensus and artificial consensus. And so he says natural consensus is when a bunch of scientists all decide that they, they all kind of come to the same conclusion independently on their own and come together and go, oh, you found that, so did I, so did I, so did I consensus it comes from like actual independent collection but then his artificial consensus is that you come together as a group and you agree on what viewpoint is going to best represent the state of knowledge on that topic even if you individually have some reservations about some aspects of it you're okay enough with it that you all just agree that this is what we're going to go with for now and there's, I think, a role for both of those things. Um, it would be probably impossible, I would guess, for the IPCC to have natural consensus. It seems like that. But then I wonder, is his characterization of how the IPCC is generated even accurate? Is that even a way to... I never like the idea that people would even think that knowledge comes from a bunch of experts getting together and voting on things. Cause that isn't really how that works. <laughs> it's not usually a voting process um, with IPCC in terms of the scientists that are involved. Well, not voting really, but you know, like, you know, where we all just decide what we're going to say. I, I think that that actually ends up sounding disingenuous if you don't explain that correctly to people. I think the best way to describe it is that um, what IPCC does is when they sit down and they're looking at studies um, for this, they are trying to tease out where the natural consensus is on the- mm, Okay. It's probably a more fair way to think about it than just to say they're going to explicitly, you know, say what the, say what the state is and the knowledge is. Um, because if you do go in depth into the longer report, you'll see how they noted like, well, we have X, Y, Z thing with medium confidence and you'll probably see like 20 citations after that statement. <laughs> because yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> you get a hold of everything that's related to that topic that they're trying to make a statement on and then try to synthesize what is the general consensus from those collection of studies. So in the sense of it, so synthesizing the natural or trying to figure out what is the natural consensus. Yes, I can see that. I can see the artificial consensus argument in the sense that you're going to have people who disagree on the strength of the evidence for different things. Yeah. Um, and you're also going to have people who disagree sometimes just flat out because if it's something that is really not settled at all well i hate that phrase um <laughs> yeah really i know i don't like it either because science is like forever provisional mm -hmm. uh and so that nothing's really ever settled except there's a couple things we can probably practically consider settled but they're not that many things oh like maybe, maybe gravity right yeah <laughs> things like gravity yeah um no it evolution 
I think, but that's my, my that's my background. I bet a lot of people out there in the ethos in the ether would not agree with me, but you know. Um, but it's yeah, I, I you're, you're gonna have that particularly if there's a lot of disagreement still on how a process works and you haven't reached that kind of natural consensus already. Then there yeah. be things where they argue back and forth of how should we phrase this because that's sure where you're going to have some scientists who are on either side of that disagreement and be like duking it out behind the scenes you just don't see it <laughs> yeah yeah and there's even there are things like that with evolution too it uh, not none of those disagreements would overturn it but they are interesting um it just means that we still have more to learn but so far those agreements those uh those uncertainties are not enough to actually overturn the whole idea so the disagreements that go on behind the scenes with climate science is not enough to overturn what we now yeah it's close to 200 years worth of science behind it so right i think that that's another thing that even science communicators talk about how hard it is to convey uncertainty and he talks about how you i don't even i wish that i had highlighted this in like bright green so i could find it but he talks about how you're not like in terms of honesty or openness or transparency, I can't remember exactly what um, honesty one where he talked about the uncertainty thing. Yeah. He said that you have to sometimes make claims seem more certain than they really are because the uncertainty would lead to the wrong view of the problem or something like that. I mean, this is exactly what everybody's afraid scientists are doing. That's what's upsetting about reading this. It's, I think I think you can convey uncertainty if you just explain like the weight of the uncertainty like okay there's some uncertainty but that uncertainty is not not the type that would actually make us uncertain of the general idea it makes us uncertain of this aspect of it like people aren't stupid you can explain that stuff and I mean, so I, I think he just doesn't seem to have a very high opinion of the public I'm <laughs> I'm no, gathering I think that's part of it he also I don't think has a he, well, I'm not going to put words in the guy's mouth, but he may right. have a lower view, not just of the public, but of anybody who's using scientific information in the sense that they don't think they can process the uncertainty well when you get it. Um, however, um, I will get to one thing in that he's not wrong, that there's been communication studies done where they looked at what people think or feel of a word or concept and while scientists and statisticians are comfortable with uncertainty you know it's just being part of the job really um, yeah. um the general public views uncertainty as a word very negatively um yeah and so that's that i can understand is that it's like if you point if you're where it gets into the communications aspect here is it's like if you're pointing out all the uncertainty while well, you're making it appear more negative to to the general public yeah he's not wrong about that Um, yeah that said decision makers um and policymakers to something of a lesser degree because there's more decision makers than just politicians there's a lot of things like emergency managers resource managers urban planners city councils all those kinds of things they have to deal with uncertainty all the time in their decision making but it is more multifaceted um than that Mm -hmm. if you're talking about a decision and we'll go ahead and just use climate change as an example say you're trying to um trying to determine a conservation plan on a 
on a national park that for this particular endangered species that's here, but you also, you know, that's a tourist attraction too, and it's a boom for the local economy and all these kinds of things. What that park manager who's trying to decide on the conservation plan has to deal with is the uncertainty from the climate, the uncertainty from how's the community around that park going to grow, um, the uncertainty from, okay, invasive species may come in kind of thing. What does that mean? You know, where will they go? All those kinds of things. Um, the uncertainty associated with wood prices and servicing and all this other kind of stuff. And are you still going to have that tourism in the future that you, you had before? Yeah. All of those different kinds of competing things and then competing objectives on top of it that he's got to manage to that part. Those kinds of uncertainties, they deal with that all the time. Yeah. So if you can be honest with a decision maker about what the uncertainty is and the specific thing that you're focusing on as a scientist, then they can handle that just fine. <laughs> actually yeah um they may not like hearing the word uncertainty sometimes it is a communications trick where you just got to say don't call it uncertainty call it something else <laughs> yeah you know what here's a i feel like this is a really good way to explain it personally when scientists talk about uncertainty they actually are talking about a mathematical uncertainty yeah. like that's a quantifiable they know how uncertain they are and when a non-scientist in everyday speech just says uncertain they just mean i'm not sure i don't know it does not mean that in science it's like confusing theory uh, with hunch it's kind of one of those same things where you know i have a theory but do you really have a theory you just mean you have a hunch or like at best a hypothesis this is the same kind of thing when you say uncertainty that represents like ma math <laughs> like so uh, the people you're describing that do the conservation activity, they um, can handle the uncertainty because they have mathematical tools to literally handle that and they can quantify just how uncertain they are. So maybe you're not, maybe there's uncertainty, but it's a small amount of uncertainty. And so you can kind of act anyway because like the risk of being wrong is pretty low or there's a lot of uncertainty. And then you can even quantify like with the climate models. I know that there's like, the middle case and then there's the business as usual and then there's the big high you know like so it spreads out into all sorts of possibilities and we really don't know which one it's going to be because it depends on all the decisions we make so um yeah so that's uncertainty is quantifiable in science it doesn't mean oh no but i think a lot of people think that that's what that means so that, that is kind of general public perception and it's tied with the i don't know kind of thing so he's not wrong about that yeah um my point is you can address that in science communication by doing what i just did which is explain that uncertainty in science is math and i don't know i mean if i i don't know tell me if you're out there listening if my explanation made sense <laughs> if you're not a scientist and you know am i am i full of crap like is, that doesn't seem like unreasonable to me to explain that to people i think um the the person who write who wrote this seems to have this sort of unfortunately typical paternalistic I know better than you attitude that so many academics have and his his shepherd story kind of revealed that to me so you want to talk about the shepherd story <laughs> before we go to the shepherd story um okay i did want to revisit something in the sincerity section okay oh yeah i mean we talked about that definition isn't isn't really it's not one that either of us share i don't think that definition that he provides there for sincerity um, and for me, I had, I looked it up because I kind of like intuitively knew what my definition would be, but it, 
better words from a definition from a dictionary um, yeah just like sincerity is uh according to the dictionary the quality of being free from pretense deceit or hypocrisy ah uh, uh, that's yeah me and jacob were talking about it and he thought that it that it, hypocrisy like not being a hypocrite was a better definition yeah exactly yeah and 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 you don't need to agree with the assertion that you're that you're teaching you don't it doesn't need to accurately reflect what you yourself believe to be able to talk about it without being deceitful about something so yeah that's this is just like that didn't make any sense to me so i i'm like i'm i'm a little aggravated with this guy in the sense that <laughs> in the sense that you know you have the um you have the thing at the beginning where it's just like, oh, yeah, no, I'm not going to do any weird definitions. I'm not going to do any weird definitions. Well, you just did a weird definition. Yeah, that was a pretty weird definition. I thought I thought that was very much made up uh, <laughs> for the purpose of the paper. And I did have a thought, too, that his whole idea about how it's OK to tell a white lie if it leads to the desired uh, behavior outcome or um acceptance or whatever he said i can't remember the exact words what, that it's epistemic knowledge or something epistemic yeah yeah um yeah that it, i think that is a very insincere viewpoint actually so i guess he's he's actually well okay no i meant i meant the opposite of that it's it's a sincere viewpoint according to his definition because he's letting his public statement match his internal feelings right which is that scientists and experts should run things and that we, the people can't handle the full complement of what science is really doing. And so we just have to sort of tread cautiously with how honest we are so that they don't form any of these untrue beliefs that we're so worried about. I really don't care if people have untrue or true beliefs or untrue beliefs because I don't believe there's one correct way to live. So... I would rather that they arrived at whatever decision they made by like good thinking processes, which you can learn from science. So, and I mean, yeah, untrue beliefs. Uh, I, I was immediately like, okay, define yeah. what you mean. <laughs> yeah. Like what's a true belief? <laughs> what do you mean by that? Believer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Like it, it kind of goes back to the believe the science thing that we always complain about. Like, <laughs> can we just not say that word? Can we just not? I mean, yeah, there is some, to some extent, there's some belief that goes behind like why you choose to work on what scientific problem you work on. And, you know, sometimes you do have to take leaps of faith when you run experiments and when you form hypotheses and you're like, I don't know if this is going to work out, but I'm going to look into it anyway. Like, of course there's, we're human. We're not like robots, but I think just, <sighs> trying to change people's beliefs through science communication is just that's why we're in the mess we're in. <laughs> oh, that's that's the thing I always wonder about this, and I'd be curious to your thoughts. The um, one of the things I learned in my environmental communications class in graduate school was that communications is a two way street, and it's about mm -hmm. persuasion um, that you want to get across a particular message and persuade someone to do something. Uh, this was coming from the communications professor. And so this is interesting because what are we doing with science? We're trying to get across specific things and discoveries that we found, but we're not necessarily trying to persuade somebody to do something. But at the same time, communication is about 
at least in the eyes of communications people or scholars, yeah. it's about persuading someone to do something, whether it be on environmental related issues or, 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 yeah. or any number of different topics. So how do we reconcile the two things? <laughs> I think that I'm just like, personally, I'm very open with the thing that I want people to do. I'm like, a hundred percent sincere here by my definition of sincerity, which is not being a hypocrite. <laughs> um, and, and just saying like, what I want people to do is learn how to use rational thinking yeah. and reason out their decisions in life. And if they come to a different conclusion than me, I don't care, but I do wish people used rational methods more often to arrive at the decisions they make. Like I'm going to use the COVID vaccine as a, as an example. So I wish more people would get vaccinated my friends that don't have that don't get that don't have the shot are aware that I feel that way. They're still my friend. They still trust my expertise when I talk about the subject because I have a molecular biology degree and I know a little bit about that stuff. Um, but if I teach them through science communication how scientists reason things out, if they decide not to get the shot, but then they realize, oh, but the virus is real and infectious diseases work in this way, I'm just going to stay home then more often or like not go into crowds, but I'm still not going to get the shot. That's fine. I don't care. Do what you want. I do think we'd still have to address the reality of like biology, but there are many ways to do that that all can be arrived at through rational methods. I do not want to use science communication to make people get a vaccine that they don't want that that won't work it won't work anyway <laughs> so um so that's my example of i guess how to uh what were we just talking about how to separate oh like being clear about you know when we communicate we want people to do something yeah i want you to be a better thinker that's all that's all i want like it's the only thing i've ever wanted <laughs> so yeah, no i could see that because i mean i scientist who does communication stuff on occasion i mean i struggle with that it's like okay how do we reconcile these two things and maybe it's, it's just for me it's just i'm gonna tell you this i am gonna say i think you should do something about it because of the way things are projected to be but it's your your choice you know yeah i mean what else can you do i don't want to live in a world where we can make people do stuff that's sounds not good at all <laughs> very creepy so yeah, certainly. Um, did we say what we wanted to say about sincerity? I can't remember. Let me see, what, let me see real quick if there was anything else I had. Yes. We're like the masters of tangents. So we probably have started like eight different topics and didn't finish them. But that's fine. They'll forgive us, right, you guys? Will you forgive us? Ah, don't worry. The point is <laughs> having a conversation, doing it our damn own way. <laughs> or in yep. our own damn way. Um. Right. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's just like, I, I gotta look, cause I mean, I, I highlight to the Dickens too, but I also write notes in the margins. So it's just like, <laughs> I don't know if you, oh, I have that too. I, <laughs> I have so much. <laughs> um, let me see. Oh, he, one of the things he said with the universe unified model is that most people are, where is it? Oh, goodness. <laughs> most people are not necessarily getting like direct study um but they are getting awareness of a consensus in the scientific community um 
in here. So I, I don't know that I necessarily agree with that because a lot of people, there are people who do take sincere interest in scientific stuff. It's a question of just how many of them there are um, compared to those who just hear about it from the news. But even on the news, you're getting yeah. a study that you're getting a study that's blown up in the news sometimes. <laughs> and that's a singular study. It's not necessarily a consensus. Um, you do get consensus positions when things like the IPCC are put out and yeah, you get to hear about those. But I also just like, well, consensus, what do you mean by consensus? Because there's what is it? The 98% of scientists agree, agree that climate change is happening thing. And that yeah. consensus statement, there's a problem with that consensus statement because yeah, climate change is happening. But now what do you have? You have the, the real question I would be asking is how many of those scientists, you know, what percentage of scientists are also going to say the world is going to end in 10 years or what? <laughs> yeah. um, what's the consensus on that? That's not talked about. That's utterly ignored. <laughs> that sounds like it's mostly a consensus of journalists and environmental activists and not necessarily the climate scientists. I don't. I don't to, know for sure because there's not actually been any research done on that in terms of like the, the climate scientists themselves. How well, how well do they think the world is going to end? Hmm. That would be interesting to know, like, climate scientist attitudes about the future of humanity. That would be an interesting study to do. It would be a very grim study, too, but anyway. (laughs) I don't know. Maybe. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, uh, so you're a climate scientist, but you say you're an abnormal climate scientist in your, in as far as your view of the future. (laughs) But, I mean, I know other people who do climate modeling, just not for the Earth, and they seem like very rational people. The, the exoplanet people. So I don't know. They don't seem very hopeless because they want to go to space and you got to have some hope to want to go to space. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> well, I think the, um, I think the thing about the, the, the apocalyptic kind of stuff is that, you know, there is concerns as you go forward with some of these changes that you're going to do some harm to some ecosystems that can handle that kind of level of change. And there's going to be change in those ecosystems, like new plants will move in and things like that. And how much mm-hmm. can they tolerate before you can't have a plant there at all? Um, right. And things like that. There are those concerns, and but there's still a decent number of questions as to whether or not you reach the, that kind of threshold point where you would effectively shut off life um <laughs> yeah there's a lot of research about that and there it's is- not there the ca- that carrying capacity tipping point stuff like it's we keep changing it because we keep learning new things and we keep innovating and right. you know i mean i imagine we, oh my husband and i were trying to do a study once where we were trying to figure out what is the absolute maximum uh, amount of food we could produce like if we grew food on every square foot of land on the country nice. versus like air, uh, farmland arable so we had the I haven't finished it I'm still trying to figure it out I may have to get an intern to do it or someday I will sit down and pull up the code and work on it but um, sometimes programming just makes me cry <laughs> I'll be honest kind of food too because it's just like there's different yields and different Oh yeah, we had all that. I had like an algorithm that was like a, an artificial shopper that was going to the store, filling their cart with different diets. And this is what made it complicated. It was like a three-layered nested for loop. And it was a lot. I I was definitely in over my head. I was like, I'm learning new stuff and I want to die because this is really hard. So yeah, it was, 
it was rough. But anyway, that's a hard question to answer because there's a lot of data out there. And of course, it's the uncertainty thing again. It doesn't mean we don't know. It just means that there's the the, the sample space is large. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's see. What else did I have? Um, yeah, I was, I got the, I got the, uh, the apparently harmless platitude that speech must be sincere confuses us by leading us to look for a believer. Well, that's because your definition of sincere <laughs> has to do with believing the thing you're talking about all the time. Yeah. It's belief based. That's and I, I, yeah, the faith-based or an emotional attachment. That's not exactly correct to what science is to begin with. So that's, that was a comment that I wanted to make there. Um, yep. Okay. Yeah. That's all I had for sincerity that we really needed to, that I really wanted to get into. Um, yeah, I, I do say that I think his point about scientists being sincere by his definition, it definitely can cause their ideology to leak into their communication. And so I would say, if that's what you're doing, then you shouldn't do it. And in that way, I would agree with him. Yeah. In that way, I so, agree too. But um, if you're just communicating about something, then you can communicate it genuinely without being deceitful. Yeah. And that's so, here. Um, it is at, we're at 47 minutes or something like that. So I don't know if that matters, but, um, you can go, I can go as long as you'd like. Um, <laughs> okay. Yeah. I got more stuff. This could be just like one of those long form podcasts. They'll, they'll forgive us. Um, so before we get to the shepherd story, which I'm sure they're all bending there, every, you guys are all just waiting at the edge of your seat for now. Cause I've hyped it so much. Um, he talked about the, I want to talk more about the folk philosophy of science. Is there anything you wanted in like open and transparency? Oh, oh, so much, but, um, <laughs> hold on. Yes. I want to talk about the, um, East Anglia university of East Anglia climate gate and the folk philosophy of science stuff, <laughs> because I think that's actually super important. So he said, uh, derp, derp, derp. I'm going to go back to, okay, there have been a series of cases where climate skeptics have used email hacks, freedom of information requests, and so on to undermine climate science. One might think such demands for transparency are merely attempts at obfuscation or intended to complicate and slow down the research process. As such, they do not show that transparency is unimportant, but that this norm can be abused. However, I suggest that they point to a deeper problem. He means the FOIA requests right. and the email hacks point to a deeper problem. Yeah. Epistemic trust in science may be fragile because based on a false folk philosophy of science, that there's like a typo in there, I think, to introduce these concepts, consider the most high profile case of enforced transparency, the, the furor caused by leaked emails from University of East Anglia's Center for Climate Research. In this case, Climate skeptics claim that these emails showed that the climate scientists at UEA were engaged in non or anti-scientific practices, for example, by confusing correlation with causation, by refusing to include certain data sets in their analyses, by refusing to publish papers by certain authors, and so on. So he gets he talks a little bit about how um, the public would be right to mistrust scientists if they were actually doing that. However, these practices that they were decrying, decrying as unscientific were actually normal and respectable. And so he describes them, inferring causation from sufficient types and kinds of correlations is standard justifiable procedure. Refusing to publish some kinds of 
work is part of the dogmatism necessary to promote progressive research projects. That was a head scratcher. Uh, ignoring recalcitrant or strange data sets is justifiable as a response to the uncertainties of data collection. So I could see how some of those things make sense, but I really want to know when is dogmatism useful in science? I, 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 I'm, he puts it in quotes, so I don't think he really means that. He says dogmatism in, in scare quotes, <laughs> but what's an example of dogmatism being useful and what does he mean by progressive research projects? <laughs> um, I, th- I, I don't, I, I'm going to venture a guess and I'm not sure. Like, so there's dogmatism, I guess that scientists don't believe in astrology, for example, like think of something really like very out there. I mean, I don't know, no offense, if you love astrology, but I can imagine that it's fun, but it's not science. So, um, so we don't look, we don't look to the stars to predict the future in science. That's probably dogmatic. We just don't do that. Uh, Maybe to just assume that if someone was going to make a research project about astrology, that we would be like very skeptical and critical of whatever experimental design they'd come up with to understand what about astrology they're studying. Um, And it would be a waste of time probably to do a test of like whether astrology can predict the future. Someone tried that study. It was negative results. We don't need to keep visiting that again. So maybe that's what he means. Like, for dogmatism to just make sure people know that we don't waste our time with certain like very obviously implausible things. I, but I don't know. Um, yeah, there, that I think is a fair, um, and charitable way to look at it. Um, because I, the other extreme, I think one could go on is that, whatever the scientific agenda is and i don't mean agenda in terms of political agenda you know what is the big questions that science wants to answer um either way if it's something that doesn't push in the direction of answering those much bigger questions that take many 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 studies to get to right yep then those kinds of things tend to get ignored also which um has been decried in some circles of oh you're ignoring these really good really good research questions it's just that they don't push toward the larger thing which is the bigger problem that somebody's trying to answer um yeah like so there's only so many research dollars and research hours to go around and so we have to prioritize essentially that's that might be what he was getting at with progressive research projects and not progressive in terms of politically progressive but progressive in terms of going along the trail toward the Yep. For the okay. Effort. So I could. Yeah, I think it just the choice of words in that I, it made me raise an eyebrow for sure. I was like, do- I don't like the word dogmatism being used. It's in a positive light. I just. It, oh, it's very strange. <laughs> yeah, his writing style is weird. Um, yeah, I have a big line under like dogmatism is epistemically useful. I was like, uh, can you give me an example of when that occurs? But I guess what we what we came up with, I think, is satisfying. So hopefully that's what he means. <laughs> it is. is that sometimes things do not get a lab or a group may not publish something because although it's interesting, it doesn't move in the direction that they're trying to go down. Um, I don't necessarily agree with that because, I mean, I've had things get published that have turned out to be really awesome because they were also tangents um yeah same time so 
you don't necessarily have that happen all the time, but that's a choice of a given lab or a given scientist or a given organization that, uh, yeah, I'm sorry, this thing that you've done is really, really great here, but we're not going to publish it because, or we're, we're not going to try to publish it because it doesn't go down this other, toward this thing, this bigger thing that's of interest. And as most, most people don't realize when, when somebody puts in a paper for publication to a journal, you are the one who has to pay the publisher to get it published. You don't get money yes. getting it published. <laughs> yeah, I know. I had a collaborator who was like, we should submit this to uh, scientific reports. And I was like, you know, their publication fee is like $5,000. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Um, yeah, they may. And, and you review for them for free, which is also stupid. Anyway. Uh, I was also going to say, uh, I was annoyed by the pick of climate gate to irrigate, irrigate the, <laughs> illustrate this. Um, <laughs> that's awesome. You went through like four words there. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I know, you know, more about that incident than I do. So what's your beef with it? Um, so he's using this as a thing of when enforced transparency can be bad. But what he's ignoring in here is that came out and it came out with bad framing um, just as much in the communication side as anything. That was not transparency with just good or neutral kind of framing to say, this is how we do it. Da, 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 and this is what we're talking about. No, it was with bad framing where everything was just put out there and you had the problem of jargon in one group, not matching public jargon. So it's like one of the things, as I recall from reading some of the controversy on that years ago, was they had like they were talking about fixing a bug that they had in a model, um, and it was just like, well, this will do the trick, right? People reading that who were not me or not a climate scientist would be like, oh my god, they're 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 tuning the model to get what they want to get to get to get something for an agenda. Da, 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 da. Not realizing yeah. what they're talking about is they're trying to fix a problem. <laughs> It's really yeah, there happened. Um, but it came out with such bad framing that had you had the actual transparency of talking about, oh, hey, we had this problem that da, 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 and we ran across this thing, and you know, this is what we did to fix it, and that's what did the trick, doing the framing all the way through, that yeah. it probably wouldn't have been a heck of a thing to decrease trust at all people would have realized yeah it's like oh you found a problem and you fixed it that makes sense yeah or like wow climate modeling sounds really hard glad they're doing it and not me because yeah. i'm not good at math or whatever that's what i would think i'd be like mm, like better than me problem with this who had a problem with this, this is totally tangential but it, it fits here um it had a problem with his climate model he was doing things with hurricanes and usually you do with with a smaller area of a model it's like you know, you're just looking at this one area of the map. And so you'll have a storm move through, come into the frame and then go off. Right. Normally. So yeah. Or another, he had some kind of weird bug in his code for that model that he had bouncing hurricanes that went around the box and didn't go out. Oh, I, I think you told me about this in one of our old conversation shows. And we were saying it was like uh, hurricane pong. Uh -huh. Yeah. That's pretty much what it was. It's just bouncing around the box. 
of the model yeah like yeah a bug is like when the when the model does something that's like physically impossible and unrealistic that means that you made a mistake in your calculations it doesn't mean that you're manipulating the model to make certain outcomes <laughs> like some kind of yeah. very bad mistake that happened or just like another guy who well i actually did that i think at one point yeah actually i did that it was one of my early early things early things in my dissertation research oh is this when you drowned puerto rico yeah and permanent monsoon in puerto rico yeah. <laughs> oh, it's writing yeah. every day. Whoops. <laughs> yeah, not not actual Puerto Rico, just computer Puerto Rico. <laughs> oh, yes. Um, but that's the beef that I had with it is he cherry picked the one that is really, really bad framing. Um, and he goes on to say, you know, in the, okay, where is it? He goes on to say, assume the second premise was, oh, hang on, maybe I should read the whole paragraph. Uh, this possibility suggests an important complexity in our account of well-placed trust. Consider a non-expert who, prior to the release of the UEA emails, was willing to defer to climate scientists because she believed that she could defer to claims which, met, uh, which meet scientific epistemic standards, the epistemological premise, and that in virtue of social institutions, climate scientist claims were likely to meet these standards, the sociological premise. Assume that the second premise was true. Climate scientists' claims were, in fact, likely to meet the high epistemic standards. In this sense, then, the non-expert's trust in the climate scientists was well-placed. Imagine further, however, that the non-expert also held a, held a false, false folk philosophy of science. That's a tongue twister. Uh, yes. In this case, even if the non-expert's trust was, in fact, warranted, it was fragile. And had she been aware of how scientists reached their results, then she would have removed her warranted trust. That's not necessarily true. That logic doesn't follow one from the other. Hmm. Knowing how the sausage is made and having some certain amount of transparency could also have the very opposite effect of making the trust less fragile and more robust. I think that I've experienced that with writing online the way that I do. Um... I think people don't want you to pretend you're perfect. I think they want you to show that you uh, met, that you make a mistake and fix it. I think that shows integrity to a lot of people. Just from my experiences of talking to people and how they respond to my writing and our, our team's writing, that that's what they really want is to just know the messy side of science. They don't want it to be these just so stories or these like lone genius discovery miracle stories like because that's all silly that's all movies that's not real life and so I think you I think you can like we were talking in the beginning that you can express uncertainty and mistakes and problems without uh breaking someone's fragile trust yeah yeah I think you can do that for sure um so yeah, he, I mean, they go and then uh, it's funny how he says this is not to denigrate people as stupid. We are all routinely exposed to extremely idealized and unrealistic normative models of science scientific inquiry. Uh, that's true, but I, do, I I don't buy that he doesn't think people are stupid. I think that's uh, I think that is a, an insincere statement, Mister whatever your name is, Stephen something, Stephen John. <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say that. It's the deceit that bothers people most of the time. And they just wanted to be honest. Um, 
Yep. Yeah, I, I think he said it later, uh, he said at one point, yeah, it might be regrettable, but still all things considerable, considerable, justifiable for the physician to hide her actual practices from the patient. And he was talking about a physician who, he was talking about the, the physician, you know, hiding things. Oh, yeah. The because the patient believes that the doctor is a great intuitive genius, but really she's just, the physician's just great at looking through a disease database. And then intuiting based upon the patient's condition and things like that. Um, yeah. Well, yeah, no, it, it might make the patient think lesser, but it also might make the patient realize, oh, the doctor's human and actually have a more right. relationship with the doctor. Well, here's a problem with that analogy, and it's the same problem with the shepherd story. So... A physician's job is to make a patient healthy. And so what she or he thinks of the doctor's magical abilities is irrelevant to the goal of the arrangement. Are scientists responsible for the health of people? And the shepherd story is the same. The shepherd takes care of the sheep. But is that a fair analogy? Is science is to the public what shepherds are to sheep? That's a very paternalistic view. And I think his analogies betray that he thinks scientists and experts are guardians of humanity and that it's up to us to save everyone. And I think that's a pr big problem. Oh, yeah. That I think is like dripping off the pages of this paper and probably all the people that he listed at the end that did the peer review all probably share that that view of people and so no one caught it so this is another reason why viewpoint diversity is important in yeah. academia but <laughs> hi beautiful uh i have two kitties around here i apologize if they make a sudden appearance <laughs> yay kitties um, oh, and actually, I said yay kitties, and my cat appeared too, so she must know. Oh. They know. They Our cats are going to be internet friends now. <laughs> they should follow each other on Twitter or something. I'm not allowed to have social media accounts for my cats, by the way. I've been told this by my husband. <laughs> <laughs> it is a thing I have done before, back when MySpace was a thing. Oh, wow. No, um, I I my cat had a MySpace page, and my friends did, and then our cats followed each other on... Anyway. Oh, I am a huge dork, and now it's public knowledge for everyone. So, <laughs> oh, I do that. <laughs> that it ends up on my Facebook page or on my Instagram or something like that. Yeah, yes. Everyone already knew we were dorks. It's fine. <laughs> if you're still here, congratulations. We're we're here. With I know all you rock. You're, we're at an hour and four minutes. Um, yeah. So here's the dumb shepherd story, but I already kind of gave it away. Well, so you got it right. Although I was actually wondering. Um, something because i i had a question here myself uh, right at the yeah. beginning of the honesty section actually okay get into that. and i was i didn't see that with the shepherd story you, you were you read this a little bit carefully and i did see the analogy and the connection with the earlier statement that he thinks that basically yeah i think about this stuff a lot uh every single day all day um oh i have a cat in the video she's hey. trying to drink out of my glass of water <laughs> <laughs> My two are watching the birds here behind me. Um, no, I, he says at the beginning of the honesty section, um, in the previous section, I provided a theoretical framework distinguishing between trust as warranted and trust as robust for understanding the dangers of transparency and openness in the specific context of scientific research. One concern about those arguments is that they rest on an assumption that we can easily identify claims as well-established 
and hence fit for public acceptance. Science is, however, messy. I underline that statement, too. <laughs> well, I was actually thinking because we can identify, easily identify claims as well established. What I was thinking about is like, wait a minute, what, well established, do you mean, what, what do you mean? And the thing that came to mind is like, are you saying that we have an appeal to authority fallacy problem? That if yeah, that's something that is that's, well established, you're appealing to authority essentially, right? I think what he means, I hope what he means is that it's well established by the data, not by who says it. But at the that's a but at the same time, he keeps talking about the institutional structures that that support the epistemic, you know, the institutional structures that give legitimate legitimacy to the scientific claims because they wouldn't be published otherwise, or something like that. It's something yeah. Very start. It it's hard to tell if he means that that's what people perceive, right? Uh, or if that's what is happening. So like, do we trust? It kind of goes back to the thing I was saying where it's really, it's a lot of work to for a, an individual to like hear a claim in the news and then like dig into researching where it came from and who said it and what the credentials are of those people and what the status of the knowledge is and all the papers that they've published and their colleagues have published and everyone before them. Like that's how you figure out how well established a claim is according to the data. And it's a miserable long process that every graduate student has to do for their thesis. It's called a lit review. So is every person going to have to do a lit review to understand how to make a decision in life? That's ridiculous. We could never expect people to do that. So he might be talking about how easily that, how how easy that is for people to right. figure out. But like, uh, people are going to have to have shorthand for making decisions. And so if they don't like the CDC and the CDC says to do a thing, they're going to be like, the CDC's corrupt. That institutional structure is not to my liking. I'm going to not do what they say. Right. I mean, I think personally that that's not a really wise way to make a decision but then I can't blame people for doing that sometimes because how else are you going to decide something quickly because you got work to do and kids to feed and you know like it, we can't all sit there on the internet clicking away doing our own research all day long right. there's there's stuff to do in life so yeah I mean it's a hard problem and I think in that way it is hard to it is hard for people to identify whether a claim is well established the proper way let alone the improper appeal to authority way right but yeah so that's my thought on that yeah no i just wasn't i wasn't sure with the way that came across since what i wrote in the margin that's like appeal to authority fallacy question mark um <laughs> it could be because i think certainly the science journalists make that mistake they're like you know all these CDC researchers say blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yeah, that's not going to convince the people that you want to convince. Just saying they, they already don't like those institutions. So good luck. So Let's see. Um, yeah. So I, I obviously noticed, um, I think, I think our audience should be aware. I don't just study climate models. I actually study why there are some of the sources of uncertainties that we have in the climate projections so actually dealing with uncertainty all the time is my yeah that's like literally your toolkit <laughs> yeah so uh so being honest about uncertainty is bad is what i'm noting um <laughs> early on in the thing here 
Um, that's what he says. Yeah. 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 And it's just like, I don't find that from my experience, but then again, my experience is anecdotal. Um, on that. That's true. I think that in, I think in conclusion, his, his final paragraph that's right before the conclusion section. Yeah. Uh, in discussing the virtues of truth, Williams, 2002, warns against the fetishization of assertion, a focus on what a speaker strictly and literally said, rather than what others might infer from her words. <laughs> I don't like that sentence, and I'll say in a minute why. This warning occurs in the context of a familiar debate over whether there's an important ethical distinction between lying, where we say something false, and misleading, where we say something true, but with a false implication. I agree that with Williams that we should not re not place too great an ethical weight on this distinction. Really. <laughs> the case of the shepherd is interesting as a case not of misleading, but of well-leading. So the story was this shepherd uh, came into a new job as a shepherd, and the previous shepherd had been crying wolf, and so everyone started ignoring any time someone cried wolf, but... So she just cried, a band of wolves is coming. And that made everyone react, even though it really was just one wolf. And so they're saying the, the priority is not for the people to know how many wolves there are, but to get the sheep safe. So that's why he said in that case, it's, a, it's like telling a righteous lie. So if you yeah. grow up in a religious community, they probably talk about that as a righteous lie. Okay. Um, and so he's saying that it is. Because it's not a case of misleading, but well-leading. Saying something which is false is the best way for the shepherd to convince his audience of something true. The case of spurious precision is a more complex form of well-leading. So this is like, if you just like downplay the uncertainty, the scientist does not say something strictly false, but implies a claim is better established than it is. Appealing to honesty as a core virtue for science communication risks fetishizing what is strictly said at the cost of obscuring how well-leading may be a central tool for fulfilling informants' communicative obligations. So this is like also revealing of like, I think I'm the shepherd of the flock thing. And I just, I don't agree with that way of seeing people. Yeah. So. No, I don't, I don't agree. I don't agree with that either. Um, and, and the, so the argument of spurious precision is something actually that we've had some serious conversations about in the climate science community for a long time. There is, there has long been a concern about being overconfident in projecting things um, or what exactly you provide and um, balancing that with you. Of course, you don't want to be underconfident either. You don't want to be, <laughs> you you want to get you want to get the right there in the middle you know you're confident about this thing you're not underconfident part of it is a statistical yep. thing and part of it is the language part of it and how we communicate it um on the statistical side it has to do with you know having uh assuming for example independence between climate models when they're not fully independent is actually a source of overconfidence because you're not recognizing that because these models share in common parts if you are treating them as independent and therefore all equally weighted, they end up clustering toward the same solution. So you're getting a confidence in an answer for the wrong reason, which is why it's overconfident. Yeah, <laughs> right. Those kinds of things. That's a statistical thing. Um, the the like general sort of language thing is something that IPCC and others have struggled with for a long dang time in terms of trying to figure yep. out how do we how do we communicate confidence to the public in these different things. 
because you do want to be true to the fact that we don't know absolutely everything. And yet we, we want to communicate that. And at the same time, recognize that, well, folks need enough information to make a decision to do something <laughs> at the same time. Yeah. Um, when I was in my like alternative medicine communities years and years ago, that was always something people talked about was like, well, we don't know if some of these treatments work because they just haven't been tested. So it's not that it's pseudoscience. It's just an untested hypothesis. And so uh, it's hard to communicate that to people who are sick and you want to try something because you want to get better and you don't want to wait for the progress of science and you don't want to deal with the uncertainty because it's your body and you're like really sick and you want to get better. So uh, yeah, sometimes it's like, it's really tough to communicate how hard science is to do. And I didn't realize that either until I started doing research just as a technician part-time, I was like, oh, this is the size of a scientific question. It's really tiny. <laughs> you take little teeny baby steps toward a huge problem. And there's like thousands of people working on it. And I think I realized that you can't just do one study to show if something works. That's like a very naive way of seeing how, how data is generated. And probably the climate stuff is the same way. You just, you need a lot more data than you never have enough data you never have enough certainty and you never have enough time and you never have enough funding <laughs> that's just what that's just what it is and i think scientists just get used to that but if you don't work in that field that can be actually kind of upsetting yeah at the same time that you have recognition that like we have to have to communicate something and recognize from right. education literature that sometimes when we're communicating something, it doesn't come across as positively as we would like either. Yeah. Like you have to pick a treatment. You can't just sit there and wait for progress to come up with a more perfect answer. You got to pick something or you're going to die. So it's kind of the same thing with the climate. Maybe not. We're all going to die, but maybe, I guess that's one possible, <laughs> that's one possible path, but yeah. Well, communication strategy that by the for the record doesn't work. Yeah, that oh yeah, we looked at a paper about like or did I look this with you or maybe just by myself that like scaring kids makes them want to like do good things for the environment. I was like this is a highly unethical study. I oh, can't yeah, believe no, they I did, did that. On, um I did that for my YouTube channel in the Thursday review cuz Oh, okay. I knew that being kids paper. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's uh, Very not cool, man. That you're doing that to a child. Yeah, don't scare kids. I mean, even if something scary is really happening, scaring them just makes them panic and then they can't help themselves anyway. So stop that. <laughs> if you're out there doing that, stop that. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's there's that. I mean, he also, I think he also makes, aside from the experts guiding everything kind of thing, I see that elsewhere too in this section because um, I think, uh, let's see. Note that these arguments in favor of dishonest but epistemically effective communication are compatible with a strong presumption in favor of honesty. First, where policymakers are listening carefully, honest communication will clearly lead to even better epistemic consequences than will dishonest communication. Therefore, the default should be honesty. Okay, why be dishonest then at all? Um, second, yeah, he, he kind of like undoes his own argument with some of these sentences. I was like, dude, you just kind of like disagreed with yourself and then left it at that. <laughs> second, in many cases, a scientist's reason for making dishonest but epistemically effective claims may be the perceived non-epistemic effects for doing so. For example, the scientist may wish to the policymaker 
there is a typo. Yes, there's like several. <laughs> to make the policymaker believe that the ice caps are melting because she thinks this will prompt positive action. Problem that I have with this right away is, of course, you get back to the ethical argument of, is it a scientist's job to be engaged in advocacy for something? Yeah, I was talking about this with uh, my husband, too, because, like, there's a kind of advocacy you can do that's responsible, where it's just informing policymakers of what the data is without, like, suggesting a certain kind of action. That's very different from using science communication to do activism. It's very different. And that's, so, that's kind of the thing. It goes back to what we've been talking about about Shepard and 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 uh, the experts can save the world, if you will. <laughs> right, the guardians of the galaxy, all that. I sometimes I I I say that about journalists, where I think they think they're the guardians of democracy, but really they kind of like make things worse a lot. <laughs> that's so that's, yeah, I think we're at the conclusion finally. Hey, yeah, and he says don't engage in wishful speaking. That's his final message to us uh yeah okay i'm just Let's not sure see. what he means by wishful thinking to be honest <laughs> or wishful speaking yeah what can be all right so what though can be said in a more positive vein so what do we do that's yeah a really clumsy way of saying that yeah. the key ethical demand in science communication is simple to communicate only those claims which are well established uh, okay. Unfortunately, this demand is difficult to meet because it's difficult to know when claims are well established, and more importantly, because it's often tempting to seek to communicate ill-established claims for non-epistemic ends. So I feel like we should have said this like an hour ago, but epistemic means relating to knowledge. Yeah. So when he says non-epistemic, it means belief-based, I think. Yeah. I, I, so because no, uh, epistem epistemology is basically the study of how we acquire knowledge. Uh, yeah you could you could maybe edit that into the beginning of this later <laughs> um and then more people have been waiting till the end or they've looked it up themselves <laughs> yeah yeah that's true make them make them work for it right so more importantly he says it's because it's tempting to seek to communicate ill-established claims for belief-based ends i think that a lot of people do that and don't realize they're doing it yeah. it's actually very very hard to communicate science without putting some of your own beliefs into it. I spend like every day of my life thinking about how to do this. This is like what I've made my life's mission. So um, I don't think it's impossible. I do think it takes some like really deep self-awareness that it's it's almost like like a meditative process <laughs> in some ways. Something. Really? Hi. Yeah. Hi. <laughs> cat visitors well so i think wishful speaking back to what we were wondering about means maybe saying things the way you wish they were instead of saying what is so let's see it is well climate uh, both sides are accusing the other oh go ahead sorry i'm interrupting you i think we were both reading it at the same time it ha. suggests the latter vice which i call wishful speaking which is central to the ethics of science communication. For example, when climate skeptics claim that climate scientists make ill-established claims to pro promote their non-epistemic aim of greater regulation, while climate scientists accuse climate skeptics of making ill-established claims to promote the interests of industry, both sides are accusing the other of engaging in wishful speaking. That's a fact, I would say. Mm-hmm. 
I would say that's an accurate characterization of the debate, so I'll give him that. So, wishful speaking is ethically wrong because it disrespects audiences by treating their beliefs as mere means to be manipulated for further... This is hypocritical because he's basically saying we need to do that. <laughs> yeah. Wait. That's so, it's ethically wrong because we're treating their beliefs as mere means to... Be... But he says we should do well, well leading to get people to commit correct actions that's literally what that is manipulating for not anyway yeah you're it's literally manipulating he i mean he's to his credit he says the fault should be honesty but at the, in that section on honesty he's like well it's okay to tell a lie if you're trying to get to the non-epistemic good thing which is to say i'm going to get this action done about this thing manipulate the beliefs so you get the action you want yeah that he and yet wow. saying it's it's wishful speaking is ethically wrong because it disrespects audiences by treating their beliefs as mere means to be manipulated like he's literally doing that he's literally recommending that we do that yeah. by not being transparent and honest <laughs> i want i wanted to like this paper but i think just getting to the end oh, of it now is just like a big clunk like uh, okay never mind right at the end yeah it was just a big old anvil like and slam and slam Stephen john gavel. good try we need like a gavel to bang the gavel on these kinds of papers <laughs> yeah can we have a sound effect we need one so yeah and also we have a joke in our house about this paper because i talked to jacob about it and we think that because he wanted to put it in a journal called social epistemology, he had to add the word epistemic and epistemology in as many places as possible in the paper. Because if you take that off the title, trust and, and the ethics of science communication against transparency, openness, that's like a more normal sentence. Oh, yeah. If you add epistemic at the front, then maybe it makes it suitable for this journal. I don't know. That's a joke. I'm totally joking. I'm not accusing you, Stephen John, of anything deceptive. I just thought it was funny. And in truth, it may have been a requirement of the journal because I, I know there's a couple of journals in my field that do that, where if you're going to publish this kind of specific thing, you have to include the name of the climate model you're using in the title. <laughs> oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, maybe so. Maybe there's some truth to my joke. Uh, well... I think that about I think that about covers that paper. So read off the closing paragraph here. Um, we can understand the apparent appeal of the other alleged virtues in terms of concerns about wishful speaking. For example, we might believe that if institutions are open or transparent, then it is easier to check whether scientists are speaking wishfully. Similarly, at least when dealing with an individual speaker, insincerity can be evidence of wishful speaking. Being honest about uncertainty may help clarify which claims are well-established. However, these norms can backfire. Openness and transparency may, combined with the false philosophy of science, lead hearers to reject well-established claims. We may treat insincerity as evidence of wishful speaking, even in contexts such as forced consensus, where this virtue is idle, and communicating well-established claims may re sometimes require our actual assertions to be dishonest. Of course, maybe in the long run, we best, ins best ensure that scientists avoid wishful speaking by inculcating virtues of honesty or by creating transparent institutional structures. However, this is an empirical question. It is a mistake to think that these are basic ethical demands which apply to both ideal and non-ideal settings. So 
I think that falls yeah. in that last sentence where it's just like, um, where he contradicted himself because he's continuing to contradict himself kind of thing here in a way, because he's saying, oh, wait, you know, being, being honest about these things, we can check out which things are well-established or, you know, we can check on with insincerity or if somebody's open or transparent, we can actually check if they're actually wishfully speaking, you know? Yeah. And then he's saying, oh, but it can backfire because sometimes the public, I, this is what I read when I read it. And this is not what he said, but this is what I feel like he's saying like, oh, but it can backfire because sometimes people are too stupid to recognize what's in front of them and they're still going to believe wrong things. Like, yeah, guess what? That's going to happen, buddy. People are going to believe wrong things. Welcome to life. <laughs> that's so that is definitely it. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I don't know if I think this is a dumpster fire of an article or not, but <laughs> it's maybe just like like a little fire, like a dumpster candle, maybe. <laughs> you can light a paper on fire. I don't know. We should have a rating system at the end of all of these where we say like it, like on a scale of dumpster fire to like blue ribbon or I don't know. We'll have to come up with some ridiculous some scale that. Yeah, I need some op opposite analogy of dumpster fire. Yeah, what's the opposite of that? I don't, I don't even know. What's the opposite of a dumpster fire? Tell us in the comments. Tell us <laughs> what's the opposite of a dumpster fire. Yes. <laughs> well, okay. Well, thank you all for riding that crazy ride with us. You are amazing if you made it to the end of this. And I hope you now have a deeper, more robust respect for how annoying journal clubs are and how much more fun they can be when you use bad language and crack jokes. Crack jokes. That's some of the crazy shit that comes across in the dumpster fire, right? No. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you never know what you're going to find in the dumpster fire. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's it. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Stay curious. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Rogue Journal Club. If you want to suggest articles for the show, please consider becoming a supporter of shiasophia.locals.com. The link for the Locals community is available in the show notes. The Rogue Journal Club is a Shia Sophia production. Copyright 2022.